We continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, and I turn you again today to the 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. I want to read a few verses that were read last week and spend more time there. But first, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, how wondrous that we, your people, may call you by that tender, compassionate, and strong name, and to know that you care for us with an infinite, eternal love. And as we turn to the word, this minister who brings this message is a sinner saved by grace, who needs the message preached as much as those to whom he preaches the message. We pray, Heavenly Father, that every heart will be opened by the Spirit of the living God to receive your truth, that we may bow before your sovereign throne, acknowledge that you are King and Lord, and take heart from the encouragement that you give to your people from this text. We ask that you will also use this for those in our midst who are strangers to grace, that they may be drawn out of themselves to the Savior, for you are sovereign so to do. Hear our prayer, for we ask this with humility and reverence in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Matthew, the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 29 through 31. This is the word of God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, last week we spent time in this 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and we focused upon the fact that when the Gospel of Jesus Christ is truly preached, that Gospel will be opposed. And those who preach the gospel will be opposed, and Christians who live out of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be opposed. And we saw that that opposition was very, very strong indeed, but not stronger than God who sustains his people. And we came to this section that we have just now read, verses 29 through 31, at the end of last week's sermon, as the great encouragement that God gives his people in the midst of opposition. Now, I want to look at this passage more deeply. I want to spend more time here. I want to drive it home or ask the Spirit of God to drive it home more fully. Because you need this, and I need this. We need to know something of the providence of God, of His ruling and overruling in His world, His sovereignty over all things at all times. We go through circumstances in life that are very, very difficult indeed. And even though you may have memorized the catechism and you know what it says about providence, or as you heard from the confession of faith this morning, you know these truths. Yet, this is a truth that needs to be driven way down deep in the heart so that we live out of the fullness of the sovereignty of God and His providence over all things. Calvin rightly says in the Institutes, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries, the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. And he's absolutely right. There are Christians who are so ill-taught in the Bible that they're really sort of deistic. They think that God is, is not really involved in the world that he's made or in the lives of his people. Or if, they, if he is, he's involved in certain things but not in other things. And that certainly is not the view 
that we are given in God's word of, of this God who is high in state, as we sang in that opening hymn, and who is sovereign uh, over all things. So as we come to these verses, verses 29 to 31, I want to begin by saying this, and here's the first thing, uh, that these verses presuppose the sovereignty of God. Uh, they presuppose the sovereignty of God. Psalm 103.19 tells us, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. And so we have the presupposition of the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that God has an overarching plan, comprehensive and complete. Now, when we have an architect and he draws up plans for a building, uh, we understand that if the building is going to come out properly, the architect has to draw up the plans. No one objects that the architect has plans. As a matter of fact, we expect that. And yet, for some reason, there are Christians who object to the idea that God has a plan, that he has an overarching comprehensive plan. Uh, forgetting that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Uh, we object that God has this overarching plan. We think that his plan, if he has one, should actually be submitted to my plan for him and what I really want for his life. But no, it is God who has an overarching and comprehensive plan. And even though we can't understand the fullness of that plan, we know that its ultimate end is the glorification of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all things. And so the presupposition here is that God has an overarching plan and that nothing and no one can thwart that plan because God is God. Because he is who he is, no one and nothing can set aside the plan of the Almighty. In other words, his drawings never change. When we come to an architect and we say, please build this building, he brings plans and he works with clients and he alters the plans, not so of God because God has no clients. God did not one time come to me and say, David McWilliams, will you please tell me what your plan for your life is so that I can alter my plan and, and I can redraw my drawings for you? God has never done that, not one time. And you know, he never will, and he won't do it with you either. God has a sovereign, overarching plan. And this plan, thank God, includes the salvation of his people. For example, it includes the cross. We read in Acts 2.23 that the cross was according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The cross was no accident. The cross was planned and purposed by God from eternity, predestined, if you will. It includes the salvation of his elect, all of his chosen people. Now, you know that election is a true biblical doctrine. You know that God loves his children, don't you? You know that God is eternal, don't you? Well, then, he must have eternally loved his children. That's what election teaches. That's what the truth of election is all about. And those whom he has chosen, he will call to himself. Do you remember that, that story that I told you once of this fellow way out there in Aboriginal Australia, away from everybody, out in the bush, and he's lost and undone. And then across the plain comes this newspaper, this piece of newspaper, blows up to his feet, and he picks it up, and there's a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and he reads it, and he's converted. Why? Because God has a people, chose that man, and was determined to bring the gospel to him and call him by the blessed work of the Holy Spirit. This God does in the lives of his people. And then he has promised perseverance, and he has promised the glorification of his people in the end. All of this, the salvation of his people, is included in God's sovereign plan. You know, it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about this, what if I had died before I was converted? Just what if? 
Had I died before I was converted, then I would have gone to hell. Because I was lost, I was undone, I didn't know Christ, I was in myself, lost in my sin, and I almost drowned as a boy. I fell into Lake Sinclair and had my father not notice me and dove into, uh, he dived into to save me, uh, I wouldn't be here this day. I can still feel the water all around me and, and my incapacity to breathe underwater. <laughs> but you see, it was impossible. God had chosen to save me. God had determined to convert me. He had determined the time and the place and the way and the manner. It was impossible that I be drowned in Lake Sinclair. As a matter of fact, when God has a purpose and a plan for you, as he does for each of us, you cannot die until he is ready for you to, until he determines that you should. It is appointed once for men to die and after this the judgment. And so this plan includes the salvation of his people. And it is revealed for the encouragement of his people, but the knowledge of it is only God's. That's something that we need to grasp. It is, in, it is the encouragement of God's people to know that he has a sovereign plan for each of his children, but I do not begin to understand the plan. For example, we talk about divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how they relate. Take the cross again, that passage in Acts 2. The cross is according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It's predestined by God. In the same verse, he says that wicked men slew him. Wicked men are fully responsible for their own actions, and yet God has sovereignly predestined it. And the Bible doesn't put us on the horns of a dilemma and say, well, you either hold to the sovereignty of God or you hold to human responsibility. The Bible says God has ordained means as well as ends. And that even the wrath of men shall praise him. And that men are fully responsible for their own choices and decisions. And at the same time, God is sovereign in and through and over them all. I can understand that. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Now, it is probably true that someone here today needs to repent of your failure to, your unwillingness to receive this truth for what it is. Because of intellectual difficulties or whatever it may be, you find it very difficult to hold to these things. But this is what the Bible teaches in no uncertain terms. I could take you to every standard confession of faith throughout the history of the church, and you would find this doctrine there, because it is mined from the Word of God. It is not for you to grasp and understand the intricacies. It is for you to bow before the sovereign throne of God and to receive the encouragement that God has for you as a child. That we do away with our pride and we bow before God's sovereign will and say, Lord, you have a plan. And I acknowledge that plan. And so the first thing that we see about this text is that it everywhere presupposes the sovereignty of God. But the second thing we see in the text is that God's sovereign plan extends to the minutiae to the minutia of life. And this is taught right here in the passage. Are not two sparrows, little birds, two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The sparrow, we're told in Luke's gospel, Five were sold for two farthings. They're of little account, and yet God's providence extends even to the sparrows. Not one sparrow falls without your Father in heaven. The hairs on your head are all numbered. I wouldn't begin to know how to count the hairs on your head. But God knows every one of them. 
Our catechism says, God's works of providence are as most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It extends to the minutia, and it's taught everywhere in Scripture. Had we time, we would preach this morning the whole narrative of Joseph, but I'll just mention it. You remember, don't you, that he's sold into Egyptian slavery. Uh, there, his, his brothers, remembering that he had this dream that they would bow before him, they're jealous. And they, they move from one place and they go to Dothan. Why? Because there's a caravan that will be coming through there. And that caravan of Ishmaelites uh, just happened to be trading in slaves. And so he's purchased rather than left to die. Rather than actually being killed by his brothers, he goes into Egypt, and what happens there? Well, he's sold to a particular person, Potiphar. Was that chance? No. Because there's Potiphar's wife, who's filled with lust, and through her lust, it ends up that Joseph is falsely accused and put into, into the dungeon. Why in the dungeon? Because there are two men there that have dreams, and they learn that Joseph can interpret dreams. And then when the cup bearer goes to work again for Pharaoh, as had been promised by Joseph as he interpreted the dream, then Pharaoh has a dream and he needs someone to interpret, no one can. The cupbearer says, ah, I remember now, there's someone who can do this. And then, of course, Joseph is lifted up and he's given the seat right next to Pharaoh's and he preserves Egypt, but also he preserves his brothers and his family that would have starved to death over in Canaan. But not only that, he could not have known. Joseph had no idea that in preserving Jacob, he's preserving Israel. In preserving Israel, he is actually preserving the line through which the Messiah would come into the world. No Joseph, no Messiah. It's all the providence of God from beginning to end. So that Joseph says, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. And that's true of your life as well. Or this passage that Pastor McDonald read. You see why I chose it. Here Ahab, the king, is told by Micaiah the prophet, if you come back, the Lord has not spoken by me. He disguises himself because he thinks he can outdo God. Nobody's going to recognize that he's the king. But what happens? A soldier at random pulls back his, his bow, lets the arrow fly, and it just happens to hit the king and it just happens to come right at the point of entry where there's weakness in his armor so that he dies. Chance? No, not chance. The providence of God. Most of you know that little proverb about the horseshoe nail. Let me remind you of it. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Old proverb, Benjamin Franklin, the deist, quoted it. It's used today when, when people talk about chaos theory. Chaos theory. No, no, the providence of God. The whole thing is lost for want of a horseshoe nail, but the Christian knows that is in the providence of Almighty God. The Lord is in the details, the everyday, so the common is not so common after all, is it? What you do in your everyday life is not so common after all, is it? You Sunday school teacher, you're preparing your lesson for these little children. You come and you don't see anything happening. You keep doing it because God is in the details. He's working in ways that you cannot see and you cannot know 
in the hearts of these little children. God is in the details. And if God is in the details, then people of God, give God your heart in minute detail. Don't hold anything back. Give it all to him. Give it to him. He's in control anyway. The third thing I want you to see. There is no chance in God's universe. There is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as chance. There is no chance in God's universe. Why? Well, first of all, because God's knowledge is perfect. His knowledge extends to sparrows. His knowledge extends to the hairs on your head. Now, there is in the church today, and I mean churches that call themselves evangelical, this viewpoint called the openness of God viewpoint, and it denies all of this. It denies God's coordination, denies that God can know in advance what free agents will decide. It's this low view of God that is preached from pulpits, and it's all over our country. What does the text say? The sparrows don't fall without him. The hairs of your head are numbered. 1 John 3.20 says, God knows everything. This is the God of the Bible. And I especially want our young people to have this very high, exalted view of God so that when you go through difficulties in life and things let you down, you know that there's something under your feet that's solid. These people that are being taught this openness of God viewpoint that has such a low view of God, when things happen and they are let down, they are let down hard. Because they don't understand these truths. I want you to understand these truths and to apply them to your life. There's no chance in God's universe because His knowledge is perfect, but also because God holds in His hands men's thoughts and ways. Proverbs 21.1, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. King James Version. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, so that you can read this verse for yourselves. It, of course, has a context, but its context would fully support its immediate reading. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul the Apostle says, In Him, that is in Christ, this is Ephesians 1, 11, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works, that's providence. All things, that's the extent of his moral government. According to the counsel, that's his divine eternal decree. Of his will, that's the first cause behind everything. Yes, God holds in his hands all things, including the thoughts and intents of the hearts of men under his sovereign sway. Think of this. God says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. But there's the Virgin Mary and she lives in Nazareth. God says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so this, this emperor, Augustus, gets an idea. I think that we should, uh, we should tax the whole world. We should... Uh, enroll the entire world. And uh, you know what else I think we ought to do? We need to get people to go to their hometown to register. Uh, So everybody is going to go to their hometown. You know, that's a stupid idea. Stop and think about it. I mean, it just brings 
pandemonium to the whole empire. Everybody has to get up. They have to go to their hometown. What a ridiculous idea. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so God, God is at work in the thought life of Augustus Caesar so that Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth and come to Bethlehem where the Messiah will be born just as God said in Micah 5, 2, 500 years before it happened. God is sovereign. God holds in his hands men's thoughts and ways. There's no chance in God's universe also because God fulfills his decree. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my purpose. Daniel 4.35, he does what he will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? Sparrows don't fall without him. There are no contingencies to God. And so, people of God, God deserves to be treated with complete confidence, doesn't he? He really does. And God's plan does not change. Thank God, God's plan does not change because God does not change. And so he says to his people in Malachi chapter 3, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed. If God were a chameleon, he would love them one day and not the next. He would keep them one day and they could be lost the next. But no, you're not consumed because I, the Lord, don't change. Psalm 33:11. the counsel of the Lord stands forever. He will not love you one day and fail you to, lo- to love you the next. Now, people of God, when you say these things and teach these things, one of the first things out of the mouths of people is that's fatalism. That's ignorance is what that is. It's not fatalism. Predestination, biblical predestination, providence, God's rule and overrule his sovereignty, it is not fatalism. Fatalism has no place for the personal God of the Bible. This is the infinite, wise, and holy plan and purpose of a sovereign God. So that whatever joys, whatever sorrows, whatever circumstances you are enduring even at this moment, it is not by chance. Fourth point, God's providence is exercised in special love toward his people. God's providence is exercised in special love toward you, his people. And we see that in numbers of ways, but in this text we see it because he calls himself your father. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? Now, that does not mean that His love is always apparent, that it's always clear to us. But never doubt God's love to you, people of God. Never doubt His love. Because of the cross, God demonstrates His own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we read in Romans chapter 5. He never yet sent one thing into your life, but what it was for your good and for his glory. And his love is in it all. If he showed you his love in the cross and sending his son for you, then you can know that he loves you in his sovereign providence. Romans 8.28 confirms this. You know, Romans 8.28 is not a pious platitude. It is the word of God. All things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. That's what God says. Everything about his people, everything about you, child of God, everything about you is precious to him. Even the hairs on your head. As I said last week, the hairs that fell out in the shower this morning. Some more, some less, depending on who you are. 
It's all precious to God. You are precious to him because he sees you in his son. And so there will be many times that I and that you, that we together, will go through experiences that are so hard and so difficult and so inexplicable that we will say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know what you're doing. And that's fine. It's fine that you get on your knees and you say to the Lord, I don't understand. That's perfectly appropriate as long as you also can say, but I know what is true. I know what is true. And my feet are on solid ground. I don't get it, but you do. I don't understand, but you do. I'm not sovereign. You are. Now, the fifth thing I want to say is this. What should knowledge of God's providence produce in the lives of Christians? What should knowledge of God's providence produce in your life and in mine? Let me say three things of the many. First of all, knowledge of the providence of God should produce in your life a sense of confidence and trust in God. Perspective is brought to life when I know God chose me, Christ died for me, and providence directs me. So that the so-called accidents of life are steering me where he wants me to be. You know, that's what the text is teaching. The text is in a context of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the persecution that will come to Christians because of that gospel. And what is the Lord saying? He's saying, don't fear. Go ahead. Preach. Teach. Do what I've called to do. Live out of the fullness of the gospel. Don't fear. If sparrows are under his, his sovereign control, then your life will not be lost without his will and pleasure. Benjamin Warfield told a story that I recalled when I was thinking back through this text. There were these two uh, officers in a certain military setting. There was chaos all around them. And uh, one of them walked through uh, with, with what was obvious confidence. I don't mean foolhardiness, but, but obvious confidence. And then this other officer walked by. And as he walked by, this officer, who was so confident, noticed his confidence. And so he thought to himself, and he said, as the man walked by, what is the chief end of man? The fellow whirled around and he said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The other said, I thought you were a shorter catechism boy. And the other one said, I was thinking the same about you. The point, where does the confidence come from to live in the midst of the bullets, the hardships of life? It comes from knowing all of these wonderful, rich things that we read about in our catechism that are summarizing what the Bible teaches about the sovereign God, the glory of God in all things, His providential care of His people. I knew you were a shorter catechism boy. And that's what we want here. We want shorter catechism boys and girls and men and women who go through hard things and they can say it is genuinely hard. But... We also know God in it is glorifying himself, glorifying his son, and he is he's actually serving me by making me to be who he wants me to be. And so a sense of confidence and trust in God. But a knowledge of God's providence should also produce a peaceful heart, 
a calm and a peaceful heart. Now, I don't always have it. I need to live out of the fullness of these things. I need to be reminded, just as you do. But increasingly, this should be in our hearts. You know, Jonathan Edwards, and if you know anything about the experiences of his life and how difficult his life was in many, many ways, it was remarkable that when Jonathan Edwards was seen by others, what they reported was that he had a majestic calm about him. A majestic calm. You see, affliction matures us. The persecution spoken of in this chapter, indeed, would be deep. The persecution, though, is no accident. And God is maturing His people through it all. You say, well, couldn't God choose another way? Hey, that's His business. He's the sovereign, not me. And He's determined it, and that it should be that way. I bow to that. And so we learn to be at peace and to have no ultimate fear of man. Whatever my God ordains is right, as the hymn says. You know, I'm really surprised at something. I'm surprised when I look at so many of the really good counseling materials that are out there today in the church, and there's some really good ones. And I don't mean that this is completely absent, but I am surprised to see how little this is emphasized in the counseling materials. Because what we really need most when we go through hardship in life is a knowledge of this truth. There should be much, much, much more of this in counseling and in counseling materials. Calvin says it right. A knowledge of God's providence gives us gratitude, patience, and freedom from worry. A third thing. A knowledge of God's providence should give us contentment in life. Well, I'm just full of regrets. I wish I'd done it this way. I wish I'd done it that way. I I wish I'd made this choice and not that choice. I wish things had been done differently. You need to be content. God is guiding my steps. And I want to remind you of what the Heidelberg Catechism says. This, let me tell you something, folks. Theology is a means of grace. These people who say doctrine, eh, let's throw out doctrine and just live life, that's nonsense. This, this, this is doctrine and this is doctrine for life. Listen to this. What do you understand by the providence of God? The Heidelberg Catechism answers, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from His fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will they can neither move nor be moved. And if that will not give a contented heart, then what will? You see, we need to look up more and down less. We need to look up. We need to remember who God is, seated on his throne, ruling and overruling. And then when I look around me and I don't get it, I can still say, 
There he sits. There he rules. There he reigns. So you hear the news. The news. You're not hearing the news. We need to keep up with things. We need to know what's going on. We need to, you know, and it's all news that they choose to bring on the news. But the news under the news will never be heard on the radio. And the news under the news is God is doing something in all of these things, bringing this world to its appointed end, glorifying His Son, and there will be the salvation of His people and the reprobate, reprobation of the wicked, and both will glorify His name. Now that's far beyond me, and it's far beyond you, but you need to believe it, and you need to trust Him. But if you're an unbeliever here today, what should the knowledge of God's providence mean to you as you sit here this morning? I'll say two things. First, it should mean fear. It really should. Because you are in the hands of a sovereign and just God. But it also should bring hope. Because if you turn to Jesus Christ, He will receive you. He has promised to do that. And you know, you're not here this morning by accident. You're here in the providence of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus this morning? Right now, just put your trust in Christ. I trust Christ alone for my redemption and my salvation. And all along, all along, you'll come to understand God was in it, bringing you to himself. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.